Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Guardian. Hello and welcome to The Guardian Books podcast. I'm Sean Kane. And this week we're taking you live to the London Book Fair, which this year feels... Pretty buzzy, really. Well, a mixture of buzzy and absolutely exhausted, given that most people have been on 24-hour clocks for the last, most of this week. Um, and we're, we're, it's, it's a bit like we're in Kensington Olympia, which is a bit like a sort of giant's playground, um, in that there are sort of lots of, sort of pots of sweets and things hanging around. And, and there's a great big box of apples behind us. And sooner or later, it's going to turn into alcohol. <laughs> the other word for it would be a, a Zeppelin ha- hanger. It's absolutely massive. Um, and it has no natural light, and the air has gone through 5,000 pairs of lungs. <laughs> but it's really fun. You do get a sense that, that the work's being done, although the work that is being done is not necessarily obvious to us. Well, we'll be hearing more about our discoveries and surprises later on. But first, this year, London Book Fair has fallen at a time when sales for books about politics and mental health have rocketed in the UK in the past year. Surely nothing to do with Brexit. And on this week's show, we're tackling the latter, speaking with two authors who have turned the tables on therapy in both fiction and non-fiction. In this chat, Claire took on Let Me Not Be Mad, a story of unravelling minds, written by clinical neuropsychologist Alistair, who writes under the name A.K. Benjamin. It joins a growing tradition of books looking at the health, mental or physical, of those in the caring professions. Scarily, for anyone who retains an innocent faith in the invincibility of doctors, the me in that title is Alistair. Or is it? And I had discovered Anthony Good's novel, Kill Redacted, in which a grief-stricken man seeks revenge for the death of his wife who has been killed in a terrorist attack. The novel is partly told through letters addressed to his therapist. So the four of us sat down together and I began by asking Anthony to start by reading out one of the early letters to the therapist. Dear Angela, This is my fourth attempt at writing this letter. It is not a self-expression. There is a man I hate and I want to talk about him. But you have to know my reasoning first. I can't skip straight to the end, though I think about it every day, because I want you to hate him too. I want you to understand my reasons and agree. I'd like you to try to refute my reasons and fail. I'd like you to try very hard. I want you to admit that I'm right, but you wouldn't let yourself, would you? This letter isn't going well. Well, as you can see, it's preparing to be pretty creepy. Uh, Now, what we're going to do is we're going to give each of you a chance to explain your particular projects and then we'll open it up to a general discussion because actually there's so many things that resonate between these two books. Um, Sean, you're the one who bounced into the office waving Kill Redacted, so I'm (laughs) going to leave you to talk to Anthony first. (laughs) Thank you. Well, first of all, Anthony, with Kill Redacted, I mean, the title is the thing that leapt out at me to start with and just flicking through the book you can see so many visible examples of redacted text throughout the book and it starts with there's a publisher disclaimer saying that a name had to be removed from this book and I was just sort of wondering how much of that is actually true or whether that's sort of part of the the theatre of the book itself. Right yeah it's that's a good question it's not 
100% one way or the other. When I was writing it, there were no redactions and there was a target in mind, as it were. But as I got closer to finishing the book, I sort of, I was writing it knowing that this name wouldn't be present in the final text, but had to be there in the work in progress. So it was this sort of dual thing where I knew it wouldn't be there if it ever got published, but it needed to be there while I was writing it. And so could you just sort of explain a bit of the plot to people that are listening? But I guess one of my questions would be, is this partly or totally inspired by the 2005 London bombings? Because basically we go in knowing pretty early on that Michael has lost his wife in a terrorist attack. Right. Yeah, so the book opens with Michael in therapy and his therapist comes up with this idea to that he should write these self-expressions to try and work out his anger and sort of in a way hoping that he'll get over it or be able to forgive but being who Michael is he sort of fixates on these self-expressions and fixates on the idea of guilt and blame and culpability and decides that it sort of becomes his life's project to define who is to blame for his wife's loss so then following the threads of logic he therefore is compelled to sort of take action as it were I'm not sure if that actually answers your question well there's so much we really can't say with this book because you're sort of all throughout you're drip reading information to us yeah but the thing that I found most interesting is that this this book sort of dips in and out of letters that are clearly written to to Angela but then also some are memories of his and some of them we just sort of get the sense that perhaps we're inside his inside Michael's mind right because I I thought perhaps at one point I thought well Anthony's Google history must be absolutely fascinating (laughs) because there's so many really it seems really realistic about how he goes about planning how he's going to get his revenge right and it it is actually quite chilling in that it does actually seem achievable right and so so I I was wondering about the research that went into this but also particularly about the dynamic between Angela and and Michael. Right. Just because their dynamic is so interesting in that there is a mutual power play going mm. on between the two of them that to the outside of reading the book you go, this is not a healthy therapist patient <laughs> relationship. Yeah. So I don't know if your implied question is do I have any direct experience of therapy or something? But I, I personally don't, but I do have sort of indirect experience through friends and family and loved ones. So for me, I found it interesting mainly how the people I knew who went through therapy had to sort of narrativize their life, perhaps in a way they hadn't before. And that, to me, as a layperson, seemed like quite the... That was the beneficial thing, if anything, the fact that they had to think about these things and put them in order. And I, it seemed to me just irresistible as a proxy for sort of the author and the reader relationship because the author is sort of narrativizing and putting threads for the reader to interpret. And so I like the idea that by having this direct sort of proxy that the protagonist could somehow argue with or, you know, fight back against being misinterpreted or try and, you know, state his case. Because I knew that Michael would be quite a sort of unsympathetic character and I knew that if I were to succeed in the novel, I had to make the reader care for him. So mm. I needed a way to have him immediately vulnerable and, you know, fighting his corner, but also revealing himself. So for me, it was very much 
therapy is a very literary mode of talking about life, I suppose. Should we now butt in, Sean? Yeah, of course. You may. <laughs> <And> <laughs> it seems like a brilliant, a brilliant place to start. So we'll park you two there while I talk to Alistair, who is... Your real name isn't Alistair, nor is it AK, which is the name on the book. Why this confusion about names? Uh, no confusion. I just decided to use a pseudonym to protect patients and to protect family members. And that sort of points at the heart of the problem, in a way, about writing about patients, isn't it? Is How much can you tell and, and when are you breaking confidence? Right, and there's... Depending on your profession, there's relatively strict guidelines about how to anonymise and confidentialise accounts of the work that you do with patients. This isn't typical of that work, certainly, and it's not typical uh, of those kind of narratives in that I've just drawn on lots of different elements of my clinical experience and amalgamated them in the form of patients and also fictionalised many, many aspects of their context and their characteristics not to say that I just didn't, uh, I actually made stuff up as well on top of that. So, But you reassure us that if anything, you say, this confusion makes the book more faithful as an account of my experience. Which, which is a sort of philosophical point. I mean, the, the book sort of comes from a wish to generate certain types of confusion about things we take for granted in doctor-patient relations. And then that's mapped onto some confusion that uh, the doctor himself experiences, which intensifies over the course of the book and, in, and, and involves a kind of mania or, or mild psychosis where reality itself becomes problematic. So, uh, so that the, disclaim, the, the, the mentioning of discla- uh, confusion at the start as a kind of moniker for the book is, you know, is uh, I thought I'd get the punch in early. And not only my confusion, I thought we could, we could actually sort of philosophically pick apart this mm, just one sure, sentence. So it's, sure, sure this confusion and they say my experience so it's your experience rather than your patient's experience to right. some extent yeah and the, the, I mean the the book works uh, on some level as a kind of thriller and therein lies the first clue in the disclaimer so tell us a bit about these case histories that you've chosen I mean do, would you describe them as archetypes you've got your Alzheimer's case you've got somebody who's man with a catastrophic brain injury you've got a, a boy whose family who's who's acting out the problems in his family yeah I, I over the years I've worked with lots of different neurological populations in different contexts so some children uh, some acute traumatic brain injury then outpatient diagnostics of rare uh, neurodegenerative conditions so so there's a sort of mixing together of those things but but the, but the idea for the book came from a sort of a, a cross current of sudden awareness. I remember quite clearly being sat in a room, maybe for the thousandth time, and just thinking acutely about what it might be like for a patient to think about what their doctor is thinking about while they're being seen. And that opening up this sort of horrible trapdoor. I mean, of course, it's, it's there in training. You're told to think about it. But I had a very, very direct experience. And, and what came from that is that for the patient to be well for the patient to begin their healing there needs to be an implicit trust that the doctor is bringing an almost sort of computer-like expertise together with an almost mother-like love and compassion what if those things start to unravel and at the same time because as soon as you pull that thread you do start to unravel quite quickly there's all sorts of fictions being told in that at the same time I thought again for the thousandth time here was someone in front of me who I've been trained how to diagnose and how to treat and how to interact with, 
but hang on a minute, I'm feeling more than I should be feeling for this particular person. What is it about this moment, this patient, that's pulling at the threads of my heart in a way that hadn't been tugged at before? So there was sort of a, a twofold unravelling to begin with. And then the next stage of that is, what happens is people write these things up, either in journals as case studies or in fiction as accounts of therapist and patient. And they want to create a kind of reality that that approximates doctor-patient interactions. And in fact, often the very act of trying to transcribe the nuances, the dynamisms, the different kind of chaoses that happen between a doctor and patient, these things are written out and made into more or less mundane, more or less formulaic accounts of he said that, this means this, therefore I did this. And the life of the life of the interaction, the depth and the complexity therein is squashed out and made more or less into an algorithm of success or failure. And that was again something that I wanted to to disturb in, in writing. So now I want to bring Anthony back in because I What I'm interested in is why you choose, or why we choose to tell the stories we tell in the form that we tell them. Have you ever, Anthony, considered writing non-fiction, for example? Um, No, and that's an interesting point, because I have wondered why, and why I privilege fiction over fact. And I, I think, for me, I sort of, I don't understand the point, in a way, of reading about histories or facts things that actually happen because obviously if you were to go out and observe the universe there would be far more information than you could possibly ever consume and what does any of it mean and I suppose for me fiction is unpicking things that happen and trying to suggest that what they might mean or what the significance of them is and that's for me what I find interesting you know the idea that stuff happens of course you know too much stuff happens to possibly ever make sense of. So I think fiction is better place in a way to tell us what we're actually thinking or why we're behaving the way we do. And actually there's a moment in the book where Michael, the protagonist, sort of tries to explain why anyone should care about history and what the individual student, what a boy, could get out of history. And he boils it down to history teaches us how people lie. So that immediately gives it some utility to sort of like a 14-year-old boy. Mm. And I suppose, obviously, that's quite flippant, but there's an element of that in my sort of approach as well, I think. That yes. connects quite interestingly with, with <coughs> the line in yours, which is about MRI scans. And you say an MRI scan is readable and therefore misreadable. <laughs> right. And uh, yeah, so in that sense, uh, MRIs have already got some sort of fictional quality to them. They're a, they are a story told between nuclear physicists to one another and then made simple for our benefits, like a, a adaptation for a child. Actually, with both of your books, I'm interested in the idea of therapy as a kind of theatre, particularly with your book, Anthony, with, with Michael, sort of realising at a certain point in his relationship with Angela that even though at one point she tries to sort of fob him on to another therapist and tries to get mm. rid of him mm. he knows that he can tantalize her with a sort of right. anecdote and yeah. then suddenly she'll be interested in hearing his story yeah which seems like a very understandable human 
instinct to have to go oh maybe he's about to tell me the thing that yeah. explains him yeah. but also possibly not the right motivation for a therapist no. and she's so beholden to his storytelling his, yes uh, that she sticks around for far too long <laughs> <laughs> yeah I, I, that's a sort of nod to the arabian nights as well mm. with um, tr- the sort of the stay of execution by telling the tale and i think what's interesting to me about having seen you know a few other people do therapy as it were the sort of controversy over how long it should last and how long it should go on for and sometimes it's the patient that is just happy to go on forever and then sometimes it seems like the it's actually the therapist who has to sort of encourage and say no you have to and then there's the element of money and stuff like that so I think there's always this confusion around when it should end and that's because obviously we're narrativizing our life and at what point have we solved anything do you think it's possible to solve anything Alistair uh, on, only sort of boring things <laughs> <laughs> it's not a whole life <laughs> uh, but ju- just that the the issue of theatre I think is crucial in uh, and is written into therapy uh, and there's been quite a lot of studies of the effects of therapeutic efficacy and the better actors the people who stick to their role the, the more closely get further, you know, get further in terms of wellness ratings for their patients. I mentioned a little piece of research that I did in the book where we had expert-looking doctors in expensive suits with nice fountain pens telling unsuspecting junior doctors that they had memory problems and then getting those junior doctors to elaborate those memory problems. And everyone can find a memory problem if they look hard enough. And these people, either side of their interviews with these experts, uh, were performing less well on memory tests so it's it's easy for a good actor and a powerful script to start in training ideas about in us ideas about ourselves that are so close to home our most personal ideas about ourselves can be manipulated by good actors mm. well that's what i just wanted to ask supposedly everyone has an ideal reader and i probably probably because i'm quite a skeptical person when i see oh, some bits have been fictionalised, I just read everything as fiction. But so if you have an ideal reader, how credulous are they or how much do they, should they believe it's real? Like on a sliding scale, should they believe everything or nothing? And when you were writing it, who were you writing it for in that sense? Yeah, I, I don't want to cheat that question, but I'd say the ideal reader is the person that reads it a second time and goes... I can't believe I thought that then and now I feel this but I'm but having read that the first time and thought that and felt that the first time this second time reading it the the me that I now feel may be just as unstable as that first person as well and for that to have some sort of reassuring quality to it that destabilizing effect what do you mean by that what I mean by that is that I think you know I think that hopefully it's only really reading a book a second time that you start to see how things have been moved around and how, and where you've been positioned and I think there's something about that that feeling of being, and this isn't to this isn't to attribute this to myself, but that feeling at work in fiction or non-fiction that there is a mind that's greater than yours, a de, a de facto mind that's greater than yours, because it spent more time with the material, that it's organised in a particular way, that it's led you up one path for your pleasure and delectation, and then said, actually no, that's a cul-de-sac. Now come this way. This this way's safer and surer. In fact, no, it's not sure at all. In fact, there is no, there's no sureness here other than the fact that hopefully it's been enriching and entertaining this process of destabilising. Well, I found Kill Redacted super creepy, in a good way. Thanks to AK Benjamin and Anthony Good. 
Let Me Not Be Mad is out with Bodley Head and Kill Redacted is with Atlantic. Join us after the break for The Scoop on the London Book Fair. Hi, I'm Will Dean, editor of The Guardian Weekly. Since you're a Guardian Books listener, there's a good chance you'll love The Guardian Weekly. It's The Guardian's essential weekly news magazine, featuring a carefully curated selection of Guardian and Observer journalism to give you a global perspective on the issues that matter. You'll find leading opinion writing, analysis, long reads, and cultural coverage from around the world with free worldwide delivery. So, if you think globally, now's the perfect time to start reading weekly. Visit gu.com forward slash books gw. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, judging by the frenzy at this year's London Book Fair, more than one publisher or agent likely emerged from the chaos in need of a therapist. So Claire and I ducked out of the busy hall for a quiet moment to discuss what had been going on at this year's fair. I began by asking Claire what she'd been up to. Well, I spent the first morning in this very room, actually, chairing a Freedom to Publish seminar sponsored by the International Publishers Association. And it was quite an interesting sort of piece of performance art in a way, in that it, it, reflecting the current state of the world, in that four of my contributors dropped out during the morning, wow. during the, the, the morning and the day before. One was Simon Hart, chair of the Brexit Delivery Group. Mm-hmm. Obviously, he wasn't going to be there. <laughs> Not a good day for him. One was the barrister, Kaylin Gallagher, who had to fly off to defend a journalist in Iran, who's subsequently very sadly been sentenced and sentenced to horrible punishments. And what came out of this session, as well as out of the whole fair, is how amazingly important books are to the survival of trust and truth and also how internationally powerful they are you know we, we're not talking about little parochial brexit issues we're talking about journalists being killed for writing things in newspapers mm. or doing little podcasts like we're doing now and but we can't be smug about it because you know we have our own problems in europe increasingly have our own problems and one of the issues that was raised was the control that states are beginning to take in europe over educational publishing mm. so they're beginning to censor by state control materials which haven't been censored by state control for a very long time and i wasn't actually aware of that you know i just think that we we all have to be really vigilant but we also have to be you know there is a sort of certain element of celebration in the fact that books still do have trust at a time when other media don't journalism doesn't have trust you know this the sort of fake news doesn't attach in the same way so so anyway how about you Well, I've been sort of keeping an eye on what people are buying this year. And interestingly, a lot of the um, agents that have been at London Book Fair this year have been talking about a boom in literary fiction, which has not been doesn't hasn't really seemed to be on the cards for a couple of years because there's always been this talk about how literary fiction doesn't sell anymore but uh, quite a few books have been hyped up as uh, Sally Rooney-esque 
air quotes because uh, obviously the, the huge success of her last book, Normal People. The, I think agents have been sort of keeping an eye out for young writers that had that sort of literary air but also a very accessible human drama at the heart of, of the book. So there have been quite a few uh, novels that have been snapped up. But the big thing that has emerged at this year's London Book Fair is true crime. Oh, which you you absolutely love, don't you? So I, I do love. I'm a bit excited. <laughs> I'm going to have so many this is a, a strictly objective survey. <laughs> no, there's literally so many. It's amazing. So obviously with London Book Fair, if they're only buying it now, basically we're going to start seeing these books probably in 2020, 2021. But obviously they're building on the, on the success of things like Serial and The Teacher's Pet, really, really big podcasts. And also uh, there's been a series of quite um, successful true crime documentaries on Netflix. So one of them's by a former Waterstones bookseller. Her name's Susan Jonasus, um, and it's her first book. It's called Hell's Half Acre, which is about a really strange serial killing family in 1873. And... It's historical true crime, but the really interesting thing is uh, that Susan actually did her PhD into mugshots, which I think is such a cool thing. So it's, it's probably, it's not going to be, say, something like Serial and Teacher's Pet, where you've got like an ongoing crime case. This is obviously a historical crime case, but it's one that's not very well known and is really macabre. So I'm quite interested in that one. She's only 24. And also she proves the fact that all booksellers are the future. <laughs> As sellers. we know, obviously, although the future's happened in some, in some cases, it's already happened. <laughs> uh, yes, big up all the booksellers out there that are listening. Also, Carla Valentine, who's quite well known and on social media, and she does a, quite a lot of work around this idea of uh, death, basically, and refiguring how we talk about death. And uh, she's written a book uh, called Murder Isn't Easy, which is basically about uh, modern forensic science, And but she's applying it to Agatha Christie mysteries, which I think is really, really cool. Then also there's another book by, uh, interestingly, all women. Dr. Gwen Adshead's investigation into the nature of evil is called The Devil You Know. And there was a massive publisher auction for it this week. 13 publishers fought over it. And she's a forensic psychiatrist and psychotherapist. And it was eventually won by Faber, I think, for quite a lot of money. So well done, Dr. Gwen. Um, but it's uh, basically all about the patients that she worked with at Broadmoor Hospital. So often people that were imprisoned as criminally insane. So I'm really super excited about that one. So they're sort of some of the big things in true crime. But uh, in terms of other stuff, it's already been announced before, but uh, Elton John's autobiography was also announced being bigged up a lot at this London book fair. Do you know who's ghosting it? Yes, our very own Alexis Petridis. I was wondering about that. (laughs) That's very cool. Then uh, we've also got, in terms of biography, Andrew Ridgely from Wham! is writing a memoir about his time in Wham! because, of course, sadly, George Michael has has died. Then also a sequel to P.S. I Love You, which was a really big book. Not my cup of tea, but it was a big book, so people were probably quite excited. And uh, Cecilia Hearn. Yes, it's Cecilia Hearn. And it's basically revisiting the woman that was at the heart of P.S. I Love You, uh, looking at her quite a few years after her husband has died, because the first book is set sort of quite soon after, and she's finding letters from him. And then a new Salman Rushdie. And I don't know how to pronounce this. Can you pronounce it? Kishot. 
Quichotte. <laughs> Quichotte. <laughs> well, it might be something to do with Don Quixote, <laughs> yes, presumably. Exactly. Um, so it's inspired by Don Quixote and is uh, following the adventures of an ed- ageing travelling salesman who falls in love with a TV star and travels across America to prove himself worthy of her hand, which actually sounds quite kind of sweet. <laughs> the thing about Salman Rushdie is you, you never know what mm. he's going to come up with. He can always produce a masterpiece and then he can produce a dud. So it's always a bit, a bit exciting yeah. when you know something's coming around the corner. <laughs> And then the the other thing that has happened at this book fair, which always happens every year and is particularly of interest to us, is the announcement of the Man Booker International Dozen. That is, by tradition, the 13 books that are on the long list. How did you find that? Well, I think it's really exciting. And the thing I'm most excited about, and it's something that we've always known about, UK publishing but also translated works that are being published in the UK how much heavy lifting the independent publishers are doing so you've got 13 books on this shortlist and 11 of them have come from independent small publishers or only two have come from sort of what we'd call you know the big established conglomerate publishers which is really thrilling and it's been really nice in that it's something we've known for a long time that that all the indies were actually going out there and hunting for these authors and going through the 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 hard work of finding a translator and making a, a translation that worked but it's it's kind of nice to actually see it so starkly shown in a long list and we've just recently had news that the translation market is really increasing isn't it it's something like a five percent increase last year that's right yeah so so actually i've always been slightly um skeptical about why it's the small presses and you just think actually they don't have overheads there's not much money to be made in it but actually i don't think this is any longer necessarily the case i think that they really are making a commercial case for these authors Mm. Um, and there are some quite a few names on this that i have to admit i don't know for example jokes for the gunman by mazan marouf who's a an icelandic palestinian it it would seem yes (laughs) from arabic and oh four soldiers which is by hubert mingarelli from france translated by sam taylor who did who's just recently he's a very busy boy isn't he because he's just he's just recently done leila slimani i think i've only just discovered that i could be a fan of a translator and (laughs) i'm a big fan of sam's work so that's kind of it's exciting and then um, we've had juan gabriel vasquez on this podcast from Hay last year, actually. He's there with The, the Shape of Ruins. And my beloved Olga Tokarczyk. Yay. I'm very excited about Drive Your Plough Over the Bones of the Dead. And the, the, one of the great stories about Olga is that she has these two translators and they go about in a sort of girl gang. Mm-hmm. And last year it was Jennifer Croft who took a share of the £50,000 purse for flights. But this year it's Antonia Lloyd-Jones, who is the sort of longest standing Tkarczyk fangirl. Mm-hmm. And it's so nice because they're so, they're, you know, they're just, they love each other and they're incredibly generous towards each other. And it seems to me a very sort of female way of operating. And I think that there is something about this whole world of, of translators and writers that is is very touching and sort of a new way a new way of thinking about literary collaboration for us I mean obviously translators have been doing it for years and all writers who are translated know about it there's also a Chinese novel Love in the New Millennium by Can Shui translated by Annalise Finnegan Wasmoin oh gosh all these names they're very hard aren't they before you actually get your BBC pronunciation going and then and then a writer who I actually encountered in fact I think he's been on this podcast years ago when I went to South Korea Huang Sok Yong who's here with the book at dusk and it's 
wonderful to see a, a, an incredibly distinguished writer like this coming up. And he absolutely, you can see him coming, the Korean writers coming up in the wake of Deborah Smith's success with Han Kang. And again, it's, so it's one, one small publisher in Deborah's case. She's now set up Tilted Axis, but that's encouraged a slightly bigger publisher, which is Scribe, to take on another very distinguished writer so you see it's not only about individuals it's about whole continents coming up and I, I, that's really cool and on that note there's actually uh, two novels uh, translated from Arabic so there's Celestial Bodies by Jokha Al-Hathi um, who's from Oman and there's also uh, the previously mentioned Jokes for the Gunman by Mazen Maruf that's one of your, your subjects isn't it Arabic yes <laughs> slightly <laughs> you never cease to, to amaze me John. no one asked me to speak Arabic because my, my vocab is all gone but I can uh, usually order pretty well from a menu <laughs> well what, I mean what's great about this long list is it really does give you a reading list so so I think there are about certainly nine books that I need to read before the shortlist is announced and that is a source of enormous pleasure actually because you know if they've come into another language they're books of class you know they're not just it's not just any old book that it's 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 like a sort of the sieve gets finer and finer and by the time they've been translated into another language you know that they're going to be worth reading in one in one form or another Thanks to Claire, A.K. Benjamin and Anthony Good. In next week's podcast, Robin DeAngelo rushes through the studio like a dose of salts to challenge racism and white fragility and tell us why she won't give even the most well-meaning of us an easy ride. And as always, do contact us on Twitter at Guardian Books or by leaving a comment on the podcast page. And do subscribe and review us wherever you get your podcasts. But for now, from me, Sean Kane, and our producer, Susanna Trezillian, thanks for listening and goodbye. For more great podcasts from The Guardian, just go to theguardian.com slash podcasts.